So many or maybe even most of you know the origins of Juneteenth Day, which falls on Monday this year, tomorrow. And as I said earlier, it is the commemoration of June 19, 1865, the day that slaves in Galveston and other Texas, parts of Texas first learned that they actually had been freed via the Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier. I would ask you to imagine that, but to do so would be to ask you to imagine the unimaginable. The um, unimaginable fact of slavery at all. The unimaginable fact of Texans as well as others throughout the country probably simply failing to comply with the law and continuing to hold human beings hostage to do their bidding. The fact of those hostages two years after the fact became informed of their own delayed freedom and the terrified elation that must have brought them followed perhaps by the rage of having been owned and used and abused two years longer than they might have been. Imagining those truths is hard. It's hard for me. Beginning with the very first one, slavery, the idea of human beings owning other human beings. I've never been able to wrap my mind around the concept any more than I could conceive of the utter and unabashed cruelty inflicted upon those owned humans by many of their highly regarded, socially acceptable, usually highly, if not conspicuously religious, owners. It was made excruciatingly easier for me to imagine when I went to see the movie 12 Years a Slave, some years ago now. Do any of you remember seeing that? that movie? A lot of you. Excellent. Good. Uh, this is a movie based on the memoir of Solomon Northup's life as a free man kidnapped and sold into slavery. It was a very hard movie to sit through, but it was important, at least for me, to see it. And I am grateful that the movie's makers did not spare us the horror. It was not at all gratuitous, but rather achingly necessary to our, at least my understanding, of our own history and how it plays out today. And I will say, as I have said before, understanding our history around race is crucial to us as a country and to our children. But while I understand the fact of slavery far more thoroughly than I did before I saw the movie, the dynamics of it still elude me. I understand the financial dynamics, I think, and I understand that the greed that undergirded the institution of slavery, the pure greed, I think, but I don't understand the absolute immorality of it, the obscene extent of the greed and the sustained division between the haves and the have-nots, a cruelty on the part of some slave owners that at best will be described as depraved indifference, and at worst could only be understood in terms of raw bloodlust. I don't understand the sense of entitlement on the part of those who owned slaves or those who supported slavery. I don't understand the religious hypocrisy. 
And let me lean into that piece a little bit. Jupiter Hammond, author of the reading, was the first African American to publish in America. According to Cedric May, associate professor of English at the University of Texas, there is little known about Hammond other than his birth into slavery on October 17, 1711, and the fact that he lived on Long Island. We know that he wrote four poems and three essays, all published between 1760 and 1787, in addition to the poem from which I read entitled, An Essay on Slavery, with submission to divine providence, knowing that God rules over all things. And from that poem, we know that Jupiter Hammond trusted in God. He trusted unfailingly in a God whom it would be easy to think totally <coughs> failed Jupiter Hammond and all those others who shared in his woeful fate. He never doubted never doubted that God would do right by him and his, would ultimately save him and them if only they remained faithful. I struggle with that kind of faith and struggle more with the fact that many slave owners often shared an equally powerful, though almost assuredly less desperate faith, as did the people they owned. But I believe I understand why Hammond clung so tenaciously to his faith, for what else did he have to hang on to? The practice of slavery essentially stripped all of its victims of everything else. Religion has much about which to feel discomforted around such issues, its leaders too often condoning evil disguised as biblically mandated righteousness, or responding according to the spiritually stunted, self-serving wishes of parishioners who tended to keep carefully in their grasp the tightly knotted purse strings of their clergy. This has been true on many fronts and certainly was true of slavery, although it is also true that some religious movements, such as the Quakers, were active abolitionists, as were numerous individuals from other faith traditions. Where were we in all of it? We Unitarians and Universalists and Unitarian Universalists. Allow me to read from a UUA tapestry of faith curricula. The debate about slavery in the United States proved contentious within both Unitarianism and Universalism. <coughs> While some of the country's leading abolitionists were women and men who identified as Unitarian or Universalists, each of the young denominations struggled to articulate a unified stand. Churches in the southern states felt the stresses acutely because their congregational membership was drawn from both the north and the south, and their ministers were most often northerners. As the 19th century opened, different approaches to the abolition, accommodation, and critique of slavery emerged in both denominations. Conrad Wright has suggested that most Unitarians fell into one of three groups, those influenced by the prominent abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who acted for the immediate cessation of slavery, 
those who rather sought a gradual end to the institution of slavery so as to mini minimize disruption of the social, economic, and political order, and those who opposed slavery on moral grounds but resisted making a political com commitment to end it. While we were largely opposed to slavery emotionally, if not actively, we are clearly not without blemish in this bloody stain on U.S. history. And while I do not know specifically enough about our two movements in Texas around the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, I do wonder how vocal we were in urging reluctant Texans to release their human hostages. Moving forward to the 1960s, a now merged Unitarian and Universalist tradition was once again slow in joining the march toward right. It was not until Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail in April of 1963 that church leaders and members, including Unitarian Universalists, began to become engaged with the civil rights movement. King wrote this letter in response to criticism about his work from eight Alabama clergy who publicized their attack in the newspaper. King read their letter while sitting in his jail cell and wrote his lengthy response in the margins of the newspaper he was reading. Allow me to quote just a bit of this inspiring letter. I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivi trivialities. In the midst of a, mere, of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. King further wrote, I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Brown or Barnett dipped with, dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeon of complacency 
to the bright hills of creative protest. End quote. Even then, it was not until 1965 when one of our own UU ministers, James Reed, was beaten to death in Selma, Alabama, that we really rose up to join the cause. Reed had traveled to Selma along with many UU ministers, including Gordon Gibson, my first mentor, and the minister emeritus of my home church in Elkhart. In response to a plea from Dr. King for clergy to join him in a second attempt to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge en route to Montgomery, after a first attempt ended in the excessive police violence now known as Bloody Sunday. Prior to the scheduled march, Reed and two other white Unitarian Universalist ministers were attacked by several white supremacists after dining in an integrated restaurant. Reed died from brain damage two days later. As UU minister Mark Morrison Reed writes in his book, the Selma Awakening, how the civil rights movement tested and changed Unitarian Universalism. Selma presented a turning point for Unitarian Universalists. In answering Martin Luther King Jr.'s call to action, we shifted from passing earnest resolutions about racial justice to putting our lives on the line for the cause. It not only was a turning point for us, it was a turning point for other denominations and for the movement as well. It is said with some cynical accuracy that it took the death of a white minister to ignite whites to the cause. But nevertheless, ignition occurred and progress was made. None of it easy, none of it fully and finally successful, and none of it without its foul and ugly detractors. The success of the struggle for justice based on race, class, and ethnicity seems to ebb and flow somewhat over the course of time, but it is clearly at a serious ebb currently, I think. While we cheered and cried, many of us, when our first African-American president was elected, his presidency and our forward movement as a country were marred by those who decried his election on the basis of legitimate political differences, certainly, but more, it seems, on the basis of racial prejudice. As a consequence, this number of years later, extreme conservatives have gained a foothold and obtained a voice, a very loud voice, in the direction our country is headed. And it is a direction that threatens to leave many, many people behind. We see this perhaps most clearly in the areas of reproductive justice, criminal justice, and voting rights, as well as the ever-increasing gun violence occurring in our country. It leaves no part of our country unscathed, but we feel it especially keenly here in Memphis, where 64% of the population is African-American, and where more than 21% of us live below the poverty level. In 2017, 44.7% of Memphis children were living in poverty, up from 26.7% a decade earlier. 44.7%. 
Also in 2015, there were 1,422 citizens out of 100,000 incarcerated, which is higher than many other cities, including Detroit, Chicago, New York City, Atlanta, and others. And a disproportionate number of these prisoners, of course, are black. I could continue with equally disheartening statistics, but the point is there is much work yet to be done, much work yet to be done. In the 1960s, nonviolent protests brought blacks as well as blacks and whites together to kneel in front of segregate, segregationist churches, particularly here in the South. Churches, which should always be at the forefront of our struggles for equality, justice, and the creation and nurturing of beloved community, struggle to be all that they should. This may be in part, at least in Christian churches, because of their emphasis on sin and judgment and their focus on the hereafter over the here and now. We, as Unitarian Universalists, are not so bound. We, as the religious people for whom service is our prayer, are not so bound. We, as a tradition whose very first principle regards the inherent worth and dignity of every person, are not so bound. I would ask that we consider the boundlessness which is inherent in our unique religious tradition as we observe in whatever way we choose to do so, Juneteenth Day tomorrow. It is an important commemoration, and we have an important role in all that for which it stands. Amen.